So this evening, I wanted uh, to change a little, and so I will not finish the eightfold path, but uh, Stephen has talked a bit enough about it, I presume, and you know already, I think, about it. So what I want to do tonight is to look actually about something which is from the Zen tradition, and it's called the Four Great Vows. And it is something that we recite very often whenever there is a ceremony of whatever kind, a talk, uh, whatever. We will recite these four vows. And so I wanted to share them with you. So, sentient beings are numberless, our vow to save them all. Compulsions are inexhaustible, I vow to dissolve them all. Dharma gates are limitless, I vow to learn them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to attain it. So the first one, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. And I think we have to be careful with these vows that, you know, we know that we take them literally. That I have to save every single being. Today I saved five, not bad. <laughs> Tomorrow at least one and a half, you know, and then I work on it. But to see it's actually more like, a, I would say, a poetic aspiration, something to inspire us, something to give us energy. And so, in a way, what is he saying? In a way, it's saying that the practice is not just for ourselves. It's for ourselves and others together. But I think it's also about all types. That actually, I am not just interested in being compassionate to the people I like, because that's generally quite easy, or to the little wallabies, that's quite nice too. <laughs> Well, and you know, the, the snake, as long as it doesn't come in my bedroom, I quite like it from afar. But then I stop there. You know, there are like certain politicians, no way. <laughs> certain people, no way. And so I think in a way, each of these um, vows is like a challenge. It's a challenge to ourselves to go a little beyond our limitation. And I feel here the challenge is to try to open to the all of life, to all forms of life, and try to see how can I save them? How can I be of benefit to them? Again, I think the saving I think it's a little problematic nowadays. You know, when you say, I'm going to save you even if you don't want me to. You know, there is a bit that, what I call that uh, uh, theoretical compassion. You know, I'm going to sort you out because I know better than you do. And so personally, I think we could nearly transform the save in terms of the vow that I will, I want to serve them all. I want to be open to all of life. I want to try to serve the life I encounter, that it be human being, nature, animals. So that in a way to me it's kind of coming to the encounter with a different attitude. Instead of thinking what I can get out for myself about the encounter, or coming with lots of um, already prepared idea about the encounter is kind of how can I meet this being, this life, and be of service? How can I open to that life? How can I creatively engage with that life? And so in a way it's not like a kind of a passive. It's to see that what we practice is again not to be passive. No matter, no matter what happened, I am okay. But it's actually what I would call creative, wise compassion, active 
wise compassion. Some years ago, I read this wonderful book, privately published, about some uh, monks doing in Thailand some engaged Buddhism, one could say. You know, either about nature, or about all kinds of different things. But what was interesting was the kind of the, the different types of monks and the different type of thing they did. And my favorite was a venerable crew who started out very bad in life. So he was born in a village and he had a family and by the age of 15, 17, he was very problematic because he got quite a few ladies pregnant, young girls pregnant, and the problem with that was that each time he got a girl pregnant, his family had to give a cow to the family. And so they were getting a little poorer, villagers were getting more and more upset. So they thought, what can we do with this young man? In Thailand, everybody has to go to the temple, so they thought, let him go to the temple early. So they send him to the temple with really little hope. You know, how can this fellow survive in the temple and become a good monk? But lo and behold, he became a great monk. He really took to it. And he, in a way, really transformed him. And then after many years of study and practice, he came back to the village. And coming back to the village, they saw that guy, that cruel guy, you know? <coughs> Let's see how he is. And actually, he came back and he thought, instead of you know, thinking, I am the monk, I'm going to tell them about the precept and the meditation and the Dharma, he thought, how can I help the villager? What is the thing that they need the most? Because what he realized after 10 years of being away is that actually that the standard of, of living had really gone down from being self-sustaining before, they really were kind of lots of trouble and debt and things of that nature. He thought, what can I do to help them? And he realized that what they needed was little trucks, kind of very small trucks, so that they could take their produce to the market in the, in the, village, in the town. And so he decided, I'm going to make these trucks. So he went to do some study about how making little trucks. And in a few months, he kind of got the gist of it. I think he might have been mechanically minded too. <laughs> and then he went back to his temple. And in the backyard of his temple, he made this little truck. What you see now a lot in Thailand, these kind of three-wheelers kind of thing. And some monks, kind of like you know traditional monks, thought, what is this monk doing, making little trucks in his backyard? You know, that's not what monk does. But he thought, why not? You know, I am there to serve the people. So I need to do something which is of benefit to them, which can help them. And he made these little trucks, and it was very useful to the villager, and they were very happy with him. And then they could start to practice meditation and the rest. Once, once he addressed some of the kind of the reality of what was going on. And that's what I really liked about him. That instead of, you know, being top down, I'm going to let, you know, to tell you what to do. He kind of, he kind of listened and looked. What is it I can do? How can I serve these people? And creatively he found a way to do it, which was really useful and beneficial. Then you have the next one. Compulsions are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all. And I remember many years ago when I was a nun in Korea, there was this wonderful Zen master, big guy. And uh, he really was very fond of the nuns because he thought they practiced better than the monks. And also they kept the precept better than the monks. And so often he would go and teach the nuns. And so I was in a place where he used to teach, and then one day we went to visit him in his own temple. And so, you know, we sat around him, and then he looks at me and he said, you are dark, aren't you? And I think, no, I'm okay. <laughs> you are dark. And then, you know, he went on to say other things to other people, and I was left with dark. What does he mean, you know? <laughs> and then, 
thinking about it, I think what he was talking about was this, compulsion. In a way, our habits, our patterns, that in a way limits us, that stops us, that makes us go into automatic. And often that makes us go into automatic pattern, which makes us suffer, but also which make us make other people suffer. And so to me, part of this, this being aware of the compulsion, is in a way to make us realize that we are multifaceted and there are so many things to work on, but not to discourage us, but actually to make it more fun in a way. You know, you might sort this out, but you might still look at this. And so in a way, the path of meditation is a path of discovery, of exploration of our condition. And to see that even if we have, you know, amazing experiences, we might still be stuck in some way. Once I lived in a Buddhist community in uh, England, and there was this person who had, I mean, you could say he should be fine. You know, like he had uh, lots of meditation experiences, lots of sutra study. He even studied psychology, so you would kind of think he was sorted out. But actually, he was a little kind of uh, not so sensitive to others, let's say. And for a while, his favorite activity was to go to see one of the members of the community who actually was dying of leukemia. But he'd been having that for 15 years. And he was given three years at the beginning, and he fought and fought. I have never seen somebody fight so much to live. And personally, I was very inspired by that. Because generally, I would think, well, I am impermanent. That's it. Him, no way. I, you know, as long as I'm alive, I want to live. So he was really kind of a fighter. And he was so happy when he knew that the doctor who said he would live three years were dead. You know, so that he outlived him. He had me phone to check it out. Made his day for weeks. I know it's not very Buddhist, but still. <laughs> I thought, why not? So you have this friend who is really fighting to live. And then you have this fellow who thinks it's a wonderful opportunity to go and talk to the fellow who has this illness and to talk about to him about impermanence and dying and emptiness and you know this is great opportunity and i knew whenever that fellow went to talk to him about all these things i knew he would be fuming so i would kind of notice if the guy went in then as soon as he went out i would go and kind of try to calm him down <laughs> he was so upset because he did not want to talk about death or impermanence, you know? He wanted to talk about life. And so in a way we have to see that although we might have understand, understood something, had some experience, we might still have to work on something. Possibly here being more sensitive to others or things of that nature. And so in a way, to see that we have these patterns and of course they limit us. And of course they are difficult. And we would like to eradicate them. I think often there is this feeling that, you know, why am I still like this? I've been meditating for 10 years. Why am I still angry or this or that or another? But personally, I would not see compulsion are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all as a program of eradication. Because I don't think that's what it's about. But I think it's more about how can I understand them? How can I understand their conditions? How can I creatively engage with them? So that over time, they dissolve either in terms of the intensity, in terms of the activity, because there are many different ways to dissolve not just by getting rid of things, but actually being with things differently, or even dissolving their length. To me, this is a big improvement. If you used to be angry for a week, then you become angry for a day, 
That's already that. Then from a day you go to 10 minutes. I would say it's great improvement. So in a way to see that to dissolve has actually many different aspects. And so that in our life, to me, on retreat, we are building the muscle of creative awareness so that when we go back into our daily life, we can work with that one. How can I dissolve? How can I creatively engage with my patterns, with my habits? Then you have the next one. Dharma gates. Dharma gates are limitless. I vow to learn them all. And this one, actually, I don't think we do much of that one. Even the Zen people, when they say it. What does it mean, Dharma gates? Are limitless. I vow to learn them all. Because a lot of the time, we're told to just learn one thing. And this is it. Because in a way, what we have to be careful is that if something works for us, we think this is good for me, this is the right things to do, this is the only thing to do, everybody must do this. And so I think that, yes, there are many different ways to practice. There are many different ways to cultivate. And not all of them can work for us. I think this is very important to see that the bottom line is that we have to become our own teachers because we're only the one who knows how the practice works for us, how we can be, practice it, how we can concentrate, how we can look deeply, how we can be ethical, how we can cultivate wisdom. Because each of us, in some way, are similar. <coughs> but in other way, we have our own specific condition. And so to see that often nowadays, it's like the marketplace. You have so many different groups. You have so many different Buddhisms. You have, you know, Japanese and Buddhism and Koreans and Buddhism. Then you have Tibetan Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism. And what was funny for us was when we were in Korea. And then the, the Korean would say, oh, the Tibetan, oh, you know, mantra, mantra, oh. And then you go to the Tibetan, oh, the Zen, you know, pff, they don't know anything, you know. And then you go to the Japanese and they say, oh, the Korean, they, you meditate on a warm floor. How can you awaken on a warm floor? And, <laughs> you know, and then the Korean, oh, the Japanese, and, you know. And you realize that, you know, that a lot of it, I think it's very important to see that a lot of what is Korean Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism is actually something that has evolved over time in the culture. And a lot of it is culturally bound. And this is one of the things I realized. When I went to Korea and I became a nun, for the first six months, I wanted to be a Korean Zen nun. I wanted to be like a Korean. And after six months, I realized I am French. <laughs> I cannot become Korean. It's like nearly impossible. I mean, I could aim toward like 60% adapting to the Korean, but I could not be. That's when my big realization, I could not be Korean. I could practice Korean Buddhism, but I could not be a Korean. And what I realized is it was actually nearly <laughs> physiological. <coughs> because there was this, uh, you realized that when you live in a foreign country, you realize that actually the way you thought was the right way to do things actually is a French way to do things. <laughs> and not necessarily the right way to do things for Koreans. And how many times? Koreans, either a little five years old girl or somebody else said to me, that's not the way to do this. <laughs> and then they would show me like just wringing clothes. You know, like we, I mean, French way to wring clothes is to do this. Uh-uh. <laughs> the right way to do it is kind of do some kind of strange things with it like that, <laughs> which I never mastered. 
never mastered. I mean, they, they could do it, and I was like, I can't do this. And that's really what it taught me, that actually there are so many different ways to do things. And so in a way, it's back to what is it I can do? What is it I can apply? What is it that is meaningful to me? And it's not so much about that it's, because often it's presented that this is the right way, this is a shortcut. I like it, I'm Zen shortcut. Tibetan Buddhism, this is a complete path. And then another one will be the pure path. And then, you know, what do you choose? The complete? The shortcut? <laughs> or the pure? <laughs> hard choice. Hard choice to make. But I think it's a little down to who do you meet? And once you meet the teaching, the practice, you see, hmm, does it speak to me or not? I had this um, wonderful experience when I was uh, in Korea, which really showed me to, I kind of started to laugh about some of these things. Because in Korea, you must wear socks. Even in winter, summer when it's 35 degrees, you must wear socks. If you don't wear socks, forget about awakening. <laughs> Then you go to Japan, and in Japan, you must not wear socks. <laughs> you know, in the, even if it's minus 10 degrees outside, and you're walking barefoot on the wooden board, you must not wear socks. How can you awaken wearing socks? <laughs> but then I went to Taiwan, and I noticed that it looked like they'd gone to socklessness. Because sometimes they wore socks and sometimes they did not. And I thought, ah, freedom from socks and worrying about to wear them or not. So I don't wear socks. And then I go out of the meditation room and a nun said, oh, this is so bad. What you've done is so bad. The Buddha will be so upset. <laughs> because you're not wearing socks. <laughs> and I said, but... That was the time you don't ah, she said, only after four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> after you've washed. Outside of that, no way. So they did not reach the truth of socklessness. <laughs> so in a way to see that we cannot do everything. We cannot in one moment do everything. And I think what is generally helpful is to ground in one practice or in one teaching, to really know it, to really be familiar with it, to be at ease with it, and then also learn from others. So to see they have a ground in one, then we can have others as a complementary. And at that level, we're very lucky nowadays because we can meet all these things. And personally, I find, for example, the Zen practice very complementary with the awareness practice. And so I find that no opposition between the two. I find it both go very well together. And so I think in a way this is a little for us to see what is going to be my ground practice and what are the other things that can be like tools of awareness, tools of practice which I can use in daily life, which can also help me. Because we have to see that the Buddha already had many different ideas. I mean, he taught for many years. He had many different ideas. He was very creative. And most of the school took different bits of it and then developed them in their own way. And now they reach us. And in a way, each of you, when we say something, you will also interpret it in your own way and will also apply it in your own way. And I think that's what these Dharma gates are limitless. I vow to learn them all. And to me, it's like I vow to explore the possibility of practice that I encounter. And the last one, the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. And this doesn't mean that the Buddha's way is the highest and better than anything else, but that it is very valuable, that we in which it enriches us. 
but also it means that I can do it. I can walk this path. I can progress on this path. It is not unattainable. It is not beyond me. But also to see, and I think this is very important to see, is this working for me or not? The practice I'm doing, cultivating the three training, is this useful in my life? Is it helping me in my life? I think this is very much about, in a way, our own experience. So to see, does it work? Is it beneficial for myself, for others? And so in a way to see that this vow is in a way to connect with our own creative potential, that we can cultivate it during this retreat, but we can also cultivate it in daily life. And so in a way, I would see these four vows as a power of intention, which is in a way giving us direction, the power of recognition, I can do this, and also the power of meaning, can in a way, uh, kind of values that sustain our life, that we can remember what is important in my life, what is it that sustains my life, sustain my practice. And then another thing I wanted to, to talk a little about was in a way the role of the teacher because we talk about the Buddha and in a way to see in terms of the Buddha that actually the idea about Buddhahood changed over time. That at the beginning, a time of the Buddha it was considered, because it was very much seen within a met, um, metaphysical context in many lifetimes. And so at the beginning, the idea was that you just as one Buddha what to perfect himself over many, 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 many <coughs> lifetimes. And then finally, in his final lifetime, he would have the supreme awakening. But the problem with that framework is that in the final lifetime, he could only attain awakening in the body of the man. So personally, I, I have a bit of problem with gendered awakening. <laughs> but I think it could be also cultural. But you see that it's part of that culture. And then over time, they started to have another idea about Buddhahood that actually Buddhahood was like a seed. And so if each of us had this seed of the Buddha within us, and then if we cultivate it, if we water it, then in a lifetime, in one lifetime, then that seed of the Buddha could flower into Buddhahood, into awakening for each person. And then you have the third idea. And the third idea is that actually it's not a seed. It's an actuality. That actually each of us is a Buddha. And that the only thing we have to do is be a Buddha in any moment. That actually in any moment we have the potential to be a Buddha. And so again, personally, I don't see the seed and the actuality as separate. I see them as complementary. That actually one aspect of the practice is sudden. In terms that suddenly we generally experience de-grasping. You might suddenly have an insight, you might suddenly feel very clear, or you might suddenly feel very loving. This is wonderful when you know often you do a retreat, and in the middle of the retreat, suddenly you feel that you love everybody. <laughs> but everybody, that actually there is nobody that you cannot love. And to have that experience of total open love <coughs> is wonderful. Or you can have the experience of emptiness or oneness. How many different experiences we can have? And what is interesting is generally it just happens. 
So in a way, at any moment, we can have this breakthrough. And personally, I would say this breakthrough, our moment of de-grasping, moment of releasing, where finally something goes, this grasping we have, suddenly just goes. So it feels very sudden. But it might happen because you have practiced for many years. You have many of the Zen stories, where you know you have the fellow who practiced really hard, like there is a wonderful story about this person, this monk, and he practiced for many, many years, like you know, eight or ten years, you know, and nothing works. And so finally he gives it up and just go and live in a little hermitage and you know, just kind of kind of do a little few vegetables to survive and just things like that. And then one day he kind of hit with a tool, a gardening tool, a little stone, which ricochet on a bamboo and he hear ping. And suddenly he has a breakthrough. So it's a sudden breakthrough, but after eight years. So I would say, so then there is this idea that you have this sudden breakthrough, sudden awakening, then followed by gradual practice. And then again, you can have a breakthrough and again, follow by gradual practice. And that's why, like my teacher, the one I studied with in um, Korea, he was reputed to have had three awakenings. And so you would think, well, one should be enough, you know? <laughs> but he had three. And in a way, each time, he kind of presented a poem of his awakening to his teacher. And the teacher said, oh, yeah, 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 that's, you know, good understanding. Second time, mm, yeah, yeah, good understanding. And then the third time, the teacher said to him, now you know more than me, and now I become your disciple. That actually the practice is for in each of us to become our own teacher. But also to see that the sudden and gradual is that there is this sudden breakthrough, but in a way we need to cultivate gradually in order for the compulsion to dissolve. Then there can be another breakthrough. And then again we practice in a gradual way to again dissolve the power of the habit, the power of the painful suffering pattern. And I wanted to finish with story. The first story is a story of a nun I met when I was doing my research for a book on Buddhist, uh, women and Buddhism. And so I met this uh, nun and uh, she was living in the capital in Seoul and she was teaching at a Buddhist university. And I said, you know, how come you're doing what you're doing now? And she said, first I became a nun because I wanted to become practice, awaken, save everybody. And then as she was studying the text, because that's what you do first in Korea, she read this text, the Avatamsaka Sutta, in which it said, all sentient beings are Buddhas, and all Buddhas are sentient beings. And this really transformed her life, because she realized, I am a Buddha. So then I asked, what is your practice? So she kind of dropped the, she meditates a bit, but she dropped going to lots of meditation, and now she teaches that text. And so I said, but what is your practice? And she said, my practice is to be a Buddha. So in the morning, she does a bit of meditation, a bit of chanting, then she goes into the world to teach, and she tries, she goes with the intention to have the same wisdom and the same compassion as a Buddha. And then at the end of the day, she comes back, and in a way she reviews, because Buddhas can also be sentient beings. So she reviews how Buddha-like had she been, how sentient being-like had she been, and then the next day she starts again. And then the other one, I wanted to talk about, this was this, uh, my, one could say my favorite nun, and I wrote about her uh, life story in uh, two books. And she was the most humble nun I ever met. 
the most humble practitioner I ever met. But she was really famous for her uh, practice and her experiences. And when I met her, she was like always the first one to sweep the leaves or to do any kind of work like that. She was always the first one to do it. And we really got fond of her. I really got fond of her and her of me until she told me her life story. And what is interesting is that she actually started out not so well because uh, her mother died early on and her father could not take care of them. And she was so desperate when she was about 18 that she thought of killing herself. And then suddenly she had a vision which in a way reminded her of the Buddha. And she said, well, maybe before I kill myself, I could become a nun. Why not? You know, try it out. But she went in it with this idea that she really was pretty hopeless, but she could go. And so going with this attitude and because of different things, she was also considered a little hopeless by the nuns who kind of used it as a kind of, you know, doing errands and things. And then she heard a talk by a great master who said that the task of the monks and the nuns were to awaken and to really be of benefit to all beings. So she thought, that's what I have to do. So she kind of told her nuns, I am off. I'm going to practice. And so she goes to uh, the temple and she practices. And then finally, she wants a wado. You know, like what you have been doing today in practice was asking the question, what is this? And that's called in Korean, a wado. And so she wants a wado for herself. So she goes to the master. And wadu actually means literally head of speech. So she goes to the master, she bows, and she says, Master, Master, give me a wadu. Give me a special head of speech. And the master just sits there. So she thinks, oh, he thinks, you know, I'm hopeless, you know, I can't do this. So she's just going to go. And he shouts at her, head of speech, what are you talking about? What is the head? What is the tail? Do you know? And she ran out, fright. And then she's, oh, head, tail, oh, tail. She's kind of like that. And actually, she gets this incredible sensation of questioning. And she goes on practice with this head, tail. <laughs> <laughs> And then suddenly one day, she realized that there is no need of head and tail. And then just the what is this arise by itself. And she has this incredible uh, experience of the sensation of questioning. And after that, she continued to practice and had all kinds of experiences. But I wanted to finish to read a poem, two poems that she wrote. Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. I saw the nature, awakened to the way, what rubbish. Then the next one. Clear water flows over the white rock. The autumn moon shines bright. So clear is the original face. Who dare say it is or is not? Then there was a question, and that was, would you talk a little about the topping, the topic of craving for love, respect, and approval. And this is a big subject, so I won't uh, cover it in two minutes. But I'll just say one thing. How does it feel when we love something? When we like something, or we love something, or we love somebody, we feel warm. 
every time I see the wallaby, I think, <laughs> it makes me happy. I feel warm. So in a way, love, actually, personally, I think is very essential. It makes us feel warm. It makes us feel light. And it also takes us a little out of self-consciousness. Because often we have a really too high sense of me. Either I am the greatest, either I am the most terrible, but <gasps> me. And I think when we love somebody, you know, it's an opportunity to dissolve a little of that <gasps> fixed, solid, heavy selfing. Because we open to the other. And there is this feeling of warmth, this feeling of lightness. And then we have this problem that actually we don't, often we don't like ourselves very much. So you're stuck with somebody you don't like very much, 24 hours a day, <laughs> which is not fun every day. But if you turn that round, and if you loved yourself, you would be warm and light 24 hours a day. <laughs> Easy recipe. <laughs> and then the love of others would be the icing on the cake. But you would have the cake. <laughs> Are there any questions or comments? Yes. I have a question about women. Could you maybe just say a little bit about um, the position of women in um, like nuns, also um, um, as um, laywomen, and uh, about their um, position and yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is one of my speciality. <laughs> uh, so first with the nuns. The thing with the nuns is that. The Buddha really made, at his time, in 2,500 years ago, he really made this big step, I would say, for women, in saying that the women and men were equal in awakening. And there is a wonderful story that maybe Stephen did not tell you, I don't know if he had the time, when a king has a daughter born, and he's really disappointed. And the Buddha comes to him and said, don't be disappointed. A woman has as much potential as a man. And she could be likely even better than a man. So one can see here that his attitude is quite positive toward women. But it's true that the, there is this story, legend, about the fact that he was kind of, his hand was forced to have the women become, become none. We don't know, is it true or not? Did he do it to protect because the sensibility of the time? Anyway, you accept. And you accept to have none because, as Ananda points out, men and women are equal in awakening. So then the nuns are authorized. And then seemingly, again, did that come at that time? Did that come later? Then the nuns have these few things that show that they are little below the monks. And one of the rules is that a nun of 50 years has to bow to a monk of one day and other things of that nature. So is it cultural, patriarchal, thing of that nature? I think personally it's cultural. But then things after that for a little while did not improve, let's say. At the time of the Buddha, you have a lot of laywomen and a lot of nuns who had awakening. You have, a, you have a text called the Terry Gata, which contains all the poems of lay women and nuns who awaken. There are some wonderful poems in that text. It has been translated several times. But then after that, things did not really improve, and different things happened according to the cultural condition of the places. And so one thing that happened uh, is that the Buddhism went to Sri Lanka, and then in Sri Lanka, when the ordination was lost because of historical condition for the monks and the nuns, 
the monks went back to Burma to get it back. But the nun did not manage to go to Burma to get it. And so in a way for the Theravada countries, the nun full of indignation disappear. And the problem is to make it reappear, you need 10 fully ordained nuns to ordain other. So if you don't have any, you can't start again. And that's the reason why a lot of Theravada monks in Burma, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, refuse to consider fully ordaining nuns. It's because of that. And then also in Thailand, it's even worse because there, they have even a law from, I think, 1915 that n n women cannot be fully ordained. It's against the law. So that's the situation. But then, over time, the full ordination went to China. From China, it went to Korea. And it managed to continue in various ways. And so now you have full ordination in Korea and in Taiwan. And so now, actually, you can have full ordination even by Theravada who get ordained by Korean or Taiwanese fully ordained nun. Though the purists don't accept it because it's not the same Vinaya. The, the precepts are a little different, but not very much. So there is a lot of books about this, very complex, etc. But what I found is that generally it's very cultural. That actually in Korea, I would say the nuns are 98% equal to the monks. And nobody I have ever seen does a, you know, bow to the one-day monk. I mean, you know, they, if you are equal standing, you bow to each other or vice versa. There is none of that. Same in Taiwan. In other countries, I would say it's 45% or minus 10, depending. <laughs> yeah, but again, it's very cultural, actually. And then what is interesting is that there is a huge movement to start again the ordination, full ordination for women in the Theravada country. And to my surprise, more than 10 years ago, they did it in Sri Lanka. So now in Sri Lanka, you have fully ordained Theravada nuns who ordain more nuns. And that's thanks to the support of Korean, Taiwanese nuns and Sri Lankan monks. So things are changing. I find it very interesting. Things are changing. In terms of the Tibetan, then full ordination, I think, will have a long time to go. I think it's very cultural. This is, they had lots of conferences, but nothing is shifting there. But at the same time, you have somebody like uh, Tenzin Pamo, who is building a temple for nuns, where they are trained the same as monks. And I think within a few years, you'll have such good nuns that possibly they will be uh, faced with the fit accompli. But we'll see how it happens then. Then you have also the thing what I call modernity. The thing with modernity, that it be in the East or in the West, modernity has generally meant equal education for men and women and for all different classes, rich and poor, which we now, because everybody gets educated, then actually people are more equal in a way. And so what you find in Asia or in the West is that you have many more women teachers, that it be nuns, that they be lay women. You have lots of that. And I think it's because of modernity. And so I think now things are changing. And one book I would recommend, which is fun, though it's written a few years ago, is called Being Bodies. And it's a book about, uh, I mean, mostly women from America, but talking about being a female practitioner. And it's one of the more, the more what I would call down-to-earth books that I've read about that. So it's not going into the politics of whatever, but really how is it to be a female practitioner? And if you have some disability, if you have some addiction, or whatever it is. It's a very, I find it a very interesting book. Otherwise, there are lots of books on Buddhism and women, and I wrote two of them, too. But in short, in short. Yes? 
Um, I've got a question about uh, meditation, but just before I do, what happened to Ayakana's nun's island in Sri Lanka? From what I understand, it, it, it kind of like it's ticking over. She was one of the ones who helped with the full ordination of the nun in Sri Lanka. So my feeling is that it's ticking over, it's continuing. That's what I, I understand. And just before I ask my question, I, I, didn't quite, I couldn't quite hear the word for the third vowel. What was that? Was that Dharma? Dharma gates. Gates? Yeah. Oh, I got it right. Dharma gates, Dharma doors, Dharma sometimes. Doors, yeah. yeah. Uh, my, my question um, is, uh, I found, I remember this from many years ago, the same problem that you're trying to meditate, you're thinking and you're coming in and out, and then all of a sudden it happens, and something happens, and oh, I'm meditating, and, and the actual realisation that you're meditating chews it away, like if someone's rushing out to see some beautiful bird on the railing, and they rush out and they push the bird away, what do you do about that? Okay, this actually is a training. You see, this is one part of the training, is when you actually sit in meditation and you experience what I call a quiet and clear state. So there are very little, no sticky salt, and there is this, I would just call it quiet and clear. And at the beginning, the first thing we do is, great, finally! <laughs> And it goes. As soon as you do that, it goes. And the thing to do is actually just to be with it. I, in a way, in order to sustain it, I'll talk a little more about this on Sunday morning, you just have to be with it. And actually, the thing to do is to not do anything. So in a way, to learn not to do anything with it. But just because sometimes you think, how can I deepen it? That's all the way. Just be with it. And I would often the image I have is like a mother holding a child. If you hold too tight, the child cry, too loose, it falls down. <laughs> so in a way, you just like be aware that in this moment, there is quietness and clarity. And actually just being aware of it. Just being aware how it feels. Just being it. And just, just being it. Being it. Being it. And if we do this, generally it sustains itself a little longer. But of course, like all things, it's impermanent. So then at some point, the energy gets, I think it's a question of energy, the sustaining. You can sustain it for some time, and then I feel the energy goes. And it's, then it kind of comes back to, one could say, more ordinary kind of things. But that's what I would say. Just be with it. Don't get excited. Don't comment. Don't do anything. Just experience it. I think I progressed with it, at least. I laughed this time to myself. <laughs> I thought it was quite humorous that you go rushing out, you know, to see the beautiful bird and fly away. Exactly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.